Hi, I'm Dr. Jackie Fenton, and this is Your Health Matters. This podcast is here to help you learn more about your health and the healthcare system so that you can advocate for what you need. I'm so excited to bring you my guest today, Christina Holland. She is a doctor of physical therapy and specializes in pelvic floor therapy. And I find this is an incredibly important topic. Um, Myself as a physical therapist, this is not an area of expertise for me. And I speak with a lot of people, um, especially after pregnancy, who um, find themselves having some issues. And a pelvic floor therapist is a really good person to consult. I find that in the United States, we don't know too much um, about this profession at all. And so I'm excited to bring this conversation to you today to see how a pelvic floor therapist can help improve your life. Uh, So listen in to my conversation with Christina. Hi, Christina. Hi, Jackie. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, I'm so excited to have you here today. as a pelvic floor therapist and bringing your perspective on uh, physical therapy, women's health, and and just trauma-informed care today. Yeah, heck yeah. Let's let's get started. That's my favorite. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm super excited to have you here because I am obviously not a pelvic floor therapist. That is not my area of expertise, more in the orthopedic realm. And though I see women postpartum all the time, um, And they're always like, is this normal? And I'm like, I don't know. We'll need to refer you to someone else. Um, But before we get into that, could you um, share a little bit about how you ended up in pelvic floor therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So honestly, it was a lot of roads all leading to me being a pelvic floor physical therapist. The first 10 years before I went to PT school, I was very positive I was going to work in pediatrics. And then within six months of PT school, I was like, no, I I think maybe that's actually not for me. Um, So one of the things that happened in that period of time is that I went to teach an undergraduate anatomy and physiology class so I could get that tuition stipend because hashtag student loans. And um, in that process, I ended up at a conference where it was one of those things where I just kept saying yes to things, not really knowing where it was going to lead. But in any case, I ended up at this conference I really had no business being at. It was a contraceptive technology conference for providers who were going to prescribe birth control Um, and that was literally never me. I was the only person under the age of 35, the only person who will never prescribe any type of medication. Um, and people around me were like, it's cool that you're here. Like what, why, why are you spending your Friday afternoon doing this? I was like, I'm not really sure, but I'm, I'm glad. Um, and I, and I was because in that conference, someone just kind of offhandedly talked about how, when, sometimes when they were talking about women specifically come to the doctor looking for solutions around a libido discrepancy or not feeling really um, a lot of physical desire for their partners, that one of the reasons that that can happen isn't because there's something wrong with them chemically, but actually because they're either not being supported at home or they might be having painful intercourse or painful sex. And so that was the first time I'd ever heard about it. It was like one physician saying a one-liner about pelvic floor physical therapy is what you do about that. And I was like, I am literally in physical therapy school. I've never heard of the pelvic floor. What the heck is pelvic floor physical therapy? Tell me all the things. Um, So that was a big thing that kind of got the ball rolling. And then I actually needed a pelvic surgery when I was in my third year of PT school, saw a pelvic floor physical therapist, had a great experience with the therapist, but had a terrible experience with the surgeon, learned, experienced medical trauma myself, learned a lot through that process. um, And that really kind of cemented the path that I had started going down, you know, three years earlier. Got it. Um, I think... You're mentoring your your surgery and the and the trauma that you experienced. I just think it's so common for people to be experiencing uh, garbage in the medical world. <laughs> yep. Um, I can say that also just speaking from experience in like my medical journey lately with like fertility and stuff, like the amount of medical providers that have dismissed my concerns, not even like entertained my questions is wild. And even though like I'm in healthcare, it makes me really not want to go back and ask for more help or find a different provider. 
Oh, a thousand percent. It is so very challenging. It's something that I, that actually I think from a, from a, some, the perspective of someone who is a provider, it reminded me so much. I think actually taught me for the first time that like, we talk about medicine like it's a right. Um, or that like a, a lot of the time, especially I think in private practice, we're like, well, if you just want to do it, you will. But the reality is it's so much more complicated than that. And there are so many ways that people can be hurt in this system and so many ways in which it's opaque and complicated. Um, and so going through that myself as well was like, you know, I'm, I'm a white cisgender woman and I had private insurance. It was like, and I was in the medical field, literally learning to be a public health provider, um, going through this public health journey. And it was like, oh, this is hard for me. What must it be like for folks who don't have all of the privilege that I have? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's wild. Like it's, it's so hard to be a patient in healthcare. And at the same time, like I don't think all medical providers are garbage. I think sometimes the system imposes the garbage that comes from medical providers as we know it. (laughs) Oh, I think most of the time it's the system. So something that was really interesting in the process of doing this too, and I was like going through this process with my own health journey at the same time that I was learning to be a provider was kind of this realization of, okay, I know... I know that I want to be a medical provider for these reasons. The main one being I want to help people. I know the people I'm currently in school with also want to be medical providers for this reason, which is mostly to help people. So what is the difference between me and this provider that I'm seeing who is decidedly not helping me, right? Who's actually perpetuating harm. And what I realized what there is there just isn't that much different between me and that person. Um, it was more about the systems that we were in. It was about like, where we were at in our career stages, it was, I think it was just really eye-opening for me to realize, and I'm really grateful I had this realization, which was this person who has perpetuated medical trauma against me, I could be that person or be like that person in, in negative and harmful ways if I'm not really, really careful and really, really conscientious and intentional about every step. Um, so I try really hard because I think of medicine kind of as a team, right? Like, especially when I was in school where I was like, oh, these are my people. Medical people are my people. We have, we have similar values. We're committing to this like big thing where we try and help people using this particular skill set. Um, and so why are, why is my team member, why are my team member and I seeing things so differently? And how do we make sure that I continue to have the impact that I want to, that matches my intention? Um, and I think that that's something talking about the system is super important because it can become really, um, I think self-protective for us as providers too, to be like, well, I would, I would never do that. Like for whatever reason, I'm a good person or I've had this experience or whatever. Um, but like we, we could, I could, I think anyone could, um, especially if we're not, if we don't pay attention to the systems that kind of control all of, all of our environments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about how I was at the beginning of my career compared to like what I know now. I'm like, for sure I did stuff that was probably not, (laughs) probably not helpful for people. Um, Mostly because I think at least early in my career, even though I, I wanted to be like a good listener and really help people, I was also still really nervous because it was the beginning of my career. And like, I think when I'm nervous, you just say things that are, not helpful sometimes because you're just trying to protect yourself in the situation. Right. And then now as I've like done deeper work about, you know, like white supremacy and how it, how it, um, you know, really affects the system as a whole right now, I'm like, wow, even now I need to be really careful about the things that I've been programmed on. Um, because it's not enough to just know that it's not like, that it's not right. It's, you have to like change your thinking so much so that you don't continue doing that thing that might be hurting someone. Yeah. And, and that's so, it's a, it's an undertaking and it's something that we will all screw up some, some of the time. Um, There is literally no way to get it. There is no right answer some of the time. There just isn't. Um, And I think what's important is that we continue to like try and change the systems that we're in to the possibility to the, our ability, um, and also try to, you know, just be aware of it in ourselves. So it's not like, you know, I, I always want to 
point out that I don't think that, again, medical providers aren't bad. Like, you know, we live in, we were, we live and work in these systems that are deeply flawed and really messed up. And that's not in any single individual's fault. Um, but what I will say for myself is I do feel like it's my responsibility to do what I can to mitigate the harm that I could perpetuate against people. So it's not to say I won't, um, in the system that I, that I work in and that I live in, like, I'm sure that I will, I'm sure that I have. Um, but I try every single day to minimize that to the extent possible. Yeah. Um, so do you, when you see patients that have had, um, some type of like trauma within the medical system and they need to go see another medical provider, in what ways do you try to encourage them to keep seeking help? Yeah. One of the things that I do is I like to connect with other people in locally so that I have good referrals. Um, I mean, I also, so in addition to seeing folks who've experienced medical trauma, who have experienced persistent pain, who've experienced sexual trauma, I also see folks who are trans and non-binary. And so there's also a lot of medical trauma that happens for those populations. And so I try to figure out what's important to the person that I'm seeing. Um, And I don't, I do not speak to things I don't know about. So I won't like, I won't rave about someone unless I really think they're good. Um, and unless I know something about them, if it feels like someone needs a little bit of extra assistance or support in finding a person, I will try and reach out to people. Um, I feel lucky because of the work that I do. I do know more people locally, um, who do similar types of work. So that's really helpful. Um, the thing that I always tell people, right. I think early in my career too, I'd be like, well, you should just go see this person. Like, this is what's going to keep you healthy. Right. Like, and now my conversations are a little different. My conversations now are – what I hear from you is that these are your concerns with seeing a different provider. I think those make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that you would be fearful um, based on your experiences that you've had in the past. Um, you know, it makes sense. It, it is possible. I like – I'm just really honest. I'm like, it is possible that this could not go well. Um, what I want to tell you and I want you to know is that I know this person. I've had really good experiences from them. I have heard them be really um, affirming in their language, for example, or really trauma-informed or whatever thing might be important at the time. Um, And if this person doesn't work out for you, please just let me know and I'll help you find someone else. So it's it's this thing of like, you're not going to hurt my feelings if I refer you to this person and it doesn't work out. Just come back. Like, we have a good relationship. I'll help you find someone else. We will try and get you to make it so you have a team of people that can help you do the thing that you're looking to do. Yeah. I think, um, I think the thing to point out for, for us as like medical providers is like really hearing our patients and meeting them exactly where they are because, Mm -hmm. because like medical stuff is scary. And I also think, um, particularly in your line of work, there's like a lot of shame around, um, pelvic floor and sex and postpartum things. And, and so I think, I think in your line of work, you have to be even more conscious of it than, than even other, at least in my world of physical therapy. Like, I think I have to be conscious of it, but I don't think that I see, um, quite as many things that would be shameful. Like I don't think an ACL surgery has a shame associated with it as with other things. (laughs) Yeah. And I think probably just the amount, the frequency with which you're you're coming up against things that are likely to trigger folks is probably a little bit less. Um, although certainly like anything that involves invasive, invasive or intimate questioning or touch of any kind, right, can always possibly trigger somebody. Um, but yeah, I, I totally see that. One of the things that I just try to remember and one of the things that I really learned from my experience and, you know, with medical trauma too is what was so frustrating to me is I had this knowledge of like what things were like in my body um, that no one else could possibly have. Um, So the way that I've used that since um, in my own practice is I will tell people, I'm like, yes, you are here and you're, and like, I have a lot of expertise and knowledge around muscles and bones and the pelvis and what to expect. And like, you know, physiological arousal and all of these sorts of things, but I don't have a single idea what it's like to live in your body. I don't have an iota of an idea of what it, what your experience is. So what, what I need 
the way we're going to get the best result is if we take my information that I know about the pelvis and the bones and all of that, and your information about, you know, about your experience in your own body. And we meld that and collaborate. And that's how we're going to find the ways um, to get you to the result that you're looking for. So I always tell people, I'm like, I don't have any ego around if I suggest something and it's not going to work for, for you. If it's not going to work for you, because I'm like, I'm asking you to do, you know, 15 minutes of exercise every day. And you're like, well, I have five kids and I have five minutes that I could maybe give to exercise three days a week. Great. I need to know that because what exercises I'm going to give you for 15 minutes a day might look different than exercises I'm going to give you for five minutes, three days a week. Um, and that's, that doesn't make you wrong. That doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean anything except you have information that I need. And if I just assume that you know what you need better than I know what you need, especially in regards to the way it's going to fit into your life and feel in your body, then we're already at a, at a better starting point. Yeah. I, uh, I am always so excited when my patients come in and tell me, um, about their home exercises and about what worked and what didn't work because I'm like, Oh, great. Now, now I know that this exercise makes the pain worse. Or now I know that you chose this order of the exercises because it makes this one a little bit easier. That actually makes it easier for me if I'm doing like manual therapy to determine what we're going to do or what we're not going to do. Um, and I think though, uh, you have to be, as a provider, you have to be able to create a space where people are comfortable enough to uh, share that information. Um, because I think that, I think physical therapy many times gets like lumped in with like fitness because we we provide exercises and stuff for people. And so I think the fitness world is in a definite like all or nothing state. So I think people bring that with them to physical therapy then. And then oh, we, yeah, have we have to, to try to of... go Sorry. for it. No, you're, you're good. <laughs> oh, just that. Um, yeah. Right. No pain, no gain doesn't really work um, for physical therapy and for retraining your nervous system a lot of the time. And especially as it relates to pelvic floor stuff. So we have to have a lot of conversations around like we can push this to a certain extent and this is how we know how far to push it and how far not to push it. But again, that that takes someone knowing what their experience in their own body is, which is often, especially for medical providers, not asked. Like patients aren't asked what it's actually like for them. Yeah. And I think um, as, a, as a person that that like experiences that in the medical world, like going, like I can get why that might happen because there's a time crunch. And though at the same time, then it's not really patient centered centered care. No, it is not. Um, and at least from a perspective, I mean, a lot of a lot of medical providers are treating pain, right? Unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at. And if we think about pain as an output from the nervous system, then if we are not centering the patient or if we are putting our interventions ahead of our patient's experience, that's not going to do anything for their nervous system. So, you know, I used to think I, I think especially early in my career, I was like, oh, well, I have to get to all these things. I need to like manage my time, right? That's something that we learned about billables and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the problem is, is that, or what I, what I would, you know, posit now is that actually trauma-informed care and like care that is patient-centered is the intervention. So leaving space for someone's experience, um, getting them in touch with their own body, making their nervous system feel safe, validating their concerns and being able to tell them like, from a medical perspective, these are the, I hear what you're concerned about. These are the things that I think about that. This is why I think it might be this thing. This is why I think it might not be this thing. Um, and really giving folks, you know, reassurance around what they're experiencing and what they're afraid of. That is the intervention because that is what will often reduce folks' pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To like help people with fear. And then all of a sudden it's like a light switch. At least in my experience, it's like a light switch goes off for the person. It doesn't always happen in the first visit, obviously, because I think, I mean, I think particularly for chronic pain people that, that I might see like chronic low back pain or something, um, they've just been through the system for so long that, that I feel that they probably feel like they've heard it all and they've tried it all. So to like even be able to bring down fear in the first session is just not something that's... <laughs> That's going to happen many times. Totally. And they've probably had, you know, had hundreds of instances where their system learned that like, that things were dangerous. 
And so, yeah, I can explain to you what's happening in your brain, but you hearing it from me one time isn't going to do, isn't going to override those hundreds of experiences. And the thing that we know is like, I have persistent pelvic pain from my surgery and some of that stuff. And it like, you know, ebbs and flows and I have flares and, um, but like, I, I know my, like I have the nervous system talk with myself all the fucking, sorry, all the freaking time. <laughs> you can edit that out, right? Um, no, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I have this conversation with myself all the time and still like that doesn't change that sometimes I have pain. So of course, right. like one session with our patients or like, I mean, no matter how many sessions, there are going to be times where folks have pain and like, it's very real and, and very valid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess kind of switching gears here. Um, so obviously, obviously I had a kid. Most of the people on the podcast that listen, that listen to my podcast know that. Um, I luckily didn't, even though I had a C-section, I didn't really have like any complications with leaking or anything like that. I think that is very rare in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in birthing a child and stuff. But I do remember before having my son, I was away at like a yoga retreat. And this woman was talking about how she was like jumping on the bed with her daughter. And then she just like peed her pants and she was like laughing it off. And I had just finished physical therapy school and I was like, yeah, that sounds not great, (laughs) but like trying to figure out how to uh, tell her that maybe she should like go seek uh, some care for that. But um, what are your thoughts around that conversation where people just kind of brush it off as like not a not a big deal? Well, I think it's because we're so desensitized to it. I mean, our our moms leaked and their moms leaked and their moms leaked and our friends leak, right? And so we have this idea that that's just what it is. And that's something I think that people will often um, just accept when they get pregnant is like, well, if I want to have a family and I want to have children, this is something, this is a risk I have to be willing to take on. Um, I also think that some of it too is like, then once the kid actually comes, now you're taking care of another life and you're like, well, me having to change my underwear every once in a while, maybe not, doesn't like all of a sudden something that before kids, when we had a little bit more time, wouldn't have, or would have like been a really big deal, doesn't even register when we're like in it with small children. Right. Um, with that being said, I do, I think a lot of it is just still really normalized. And if, I mean, oh man, Jackie, I can't like look through things like Parents Magazine without getting angry because it's like five ads for poise pads oh my um, throughout the whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, we're just normalizing that. Well, if you, if this is what happens, if, if this, this will happen and when this happens, this is your solution. Um, and so we know from, even just from internet marketing and stuff, we know that people are, are becoming less tolerant to it. We can see that by the number of products on the market. Um, but we are still normalizing that this is a thing that happens. So I think a lot of it has to do with just our, a cultural narrative. Also, to be honest, like, we're happening to men, cisgender men. There's no way. We, like, there's no way we would tolerate it. Um, so... I, it's, it's hard because I, you know, I think on some level we still just don't really culturally, we don't attribute the same, um, amount of importance to women's health and the focus of health of people who aren't cisgender men. Yeah. It's re- it's really tough. Um, what do you, how, uh, does, does pelvic floor therapy help with, um, leaking and whatnot for my, for my people that might not know? Yeah. Heck yeah. So, the pelvic floor is a sling of muscles between your two bony hip bones. So it runs from the front to the back of your pelvis. It attaches to your pubic symphysis, which is a joint or your pubic bone is sometimes what we'll call it. Um, and it runs to the back and attaches to your tailbone. And so those muscles run around your urethra where urine comes out or where you pee out of your vagina and your rectum. And so those muscles play a huge role in continence, both being able to keep stuff in, like when you jump or sneeze or cough, um, but also to be able to get out of the way so you can pee completely and empty completely and like can play a role in constipation and things like that. So those muscles are muscles just like anywhere else and they can get tight. They can work when they're supposed to. They can work when they're not supposed to. They can be overactive. They can be underactive. They can be strong or weak or have good endurance or bad endurance, but we can't see them very easily. Um, and we can't, and we never learn about them. So we just don't really have any way to know what the heck is happening with them. Um, So one of the things, honestly, I think the way that pelvic floor physical therapy helps with leaking 
the most is literally just someone who can look at it and say like, yes, here are the way your muscles are working. Here are the things that like really small tweaks oftentimes that will make a difference in the reason that, and the reason and frequency with which you're leaking. Um, it is not, it's, you know, I like, there are certainly parts of my job medically that can be challenging and complex. I work with a lot of folks who have persistent pain. I work with a lot of folks after gender affirming surgery. That's a different thing. But for leaking, especially postpartum, oftentimes it's just that we're not, things are not individualized and we don't know what we don't know. Right. Yeah. Because I think the message, the message is just do more kegels. Right. Do more of those and you will, your, all of your life's problems will be solved. (laughs) Gone. That's it. Yeah. And it's, I think what's interesting about it is like that. I mean, I think about, uh, like I think about if we compare it to like an ACL tear, um, like we're going to tell people to strengthen their quad muscle, but we're going to do it in different ways. It's not just let's sit on the table and contract the muscle and, (laughs) As hard as you can during in this very small range of motion for as long as a hundred times a day. Right. Absolutely like, not. Like that's not that's not gonna happen. So why it became that why it became that like doing kegels would be the thing is kind of is a little bit mind blowing, right? When we know so much about how muscles work in totally. general. Yeah. From this, like, I just want to have this quick semantic conversation around, like, what we're talking about when we're talking about Kegels or Kegels, because um, in the research, also, like, why is that exercise named after a dead white dude? I don't know. Again, it just speaks to the conversation. It just adds to the conversation we're currently having. Um, But in the research, when we talk about Kegels, what we're talking about is a max voluntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles, which is, like, if you imagine lifting the heaviest weight you can, or or I guess clenching your bicep as quickly and as hard as you can, um, doing that to your pelvic floor. When I, when we talk about what is actually helpful therapeutically, it is not just like doing very quick, hard contractions during a really small range. You want to be able to elongate the muscle, which if you're thinking about your bicep would be like straightening your arm. And you also want to be able to bend and contract the muscle or contract the muscle, which would be bending your arm. So your pelvic floor should also move down and move move up, kind of like an elevator. Um, and they, it has to be able to do both of those things and be reactive in the ways in which they do them. So a common um, analogy that I make, especially for my folks who like, maybe they're not leaking most of the time, but when they're doing double unders, for example, now all of a sudden they're leaking. Um, or doing specific like higher level activities, jumping, um, skipping, running, um, sometimes heavy lifts, um, is that if you want to be able to do a chin up, yes, you need to have strong biceps. But if you only ever train bicep curls, especially in a really short range, you're never going to be able to do a chin up. So yes, you have to have strong biceps. Yes. You have to have a strong pelvic floor to stay continent. Um, but it can't be the only thing that you're focusing on to be doing these higher level activities that take more, um, more coordination and, and work. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Cause some people were probably like, what are you even talking about right now? And what you can't see is that I make all these crazy arm motions. Um, and I'm like, this is what my bicep is doing. Imagine it in your pelvic floor. So I'm sorry that you missed me, you know, doing like the wavy hand dance, but, um, I hope that the words were helpful. You can sort of imagine it. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, so even more with the pelvic floor stuff, um, with, with helping people with um, pain with sex, what do you feel like is one of the one of the big misconceptions people have when they come to see you about pain with sex? Totally. I mean, I think a huge conception misconception is like people think there's nothing to be done about it. They're kind of checking the last last box. They're like, oh, I'm desperate, and I don't know who else to turn to. Um, and people think like there's something. So that's one thing that there's nothing can be, that can be done. The second thing is people think that they're like irreparably broken, that there is something wrong with them, that the pain and that not only wrong with them, like physically, but also emotionally or mentally. Um, so I think a kind of a third misconception that kind of gets in there is that people just, we just don't talk about it. We don't know that if you're having painful sex, you're not going to want to have sex. (laughs) So, um, 
It sounds really obvious when you say it that way, but I think <clears throat> while we would assume that with other things, we don't necessarily assume that with sex and intimacy. Um, so people come in and they're like, I haven't wanted to have sex in months or weeks or years or days or whatever is all of a sudden like really um, important and impactful to them. Um, and they're like, what is wrong with me? Like I've seen a therapist, I'm doing all these things. I'm like trying to figure out if I'm depressed. And I'm like, yeah, all of those things can also contribute. And if when you do this thing, it is painful, your brain is going to be like, no go on that. I know that I have seen this movie. I know how it ends. Hard no. No thank you. Um, so I, all of those things are things that show up very commonly when I first see folks who are having painful sex. Um, yeah. I think it's – I think the last thing that you said is just really important is that the brain is just like, nah, I'm not – I'm not participating in this nonsense. And it is really interesting. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's interesting that 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 is like related with sex. When I think with like back pain, when I see patients there, I don't think maybe they're thinking it, but it's not a thing that actually comes out of their mouth is like, what's wrong with me for having back pain? No, it's more like why all of a sudden is back pain hindering <laughs> hindering my life. Why can't I do what I want to do? And also they don't do those things then because why do you want to do something when you're experiencing pain? I mean, right. it's just not great. <laughs> oh, and, and even like, and your brain will literally stop you from doing it. Right. Um, and then you apply that to sex and people, and like, also, even if you were having pain-free sex, um, it's still not going to be very fun. So I see people who, well, part of the pelvic floor, you know, rehab for painful sex is that we got to get you first. We have to get you to a point where you're able to have, and you know, painful sex can mean a lot of things. It can mean painful orgasm. It can be pain, mean painful arousal. Um, it can mean painful ejaculation. If you're someone who has a penis, it can mean painful penetration. So it can mean a lot of things at the very, at the very beginning, we have to get you to a point where it's at least pain-free. Having pain-free sex does not mean you're having fun sex. Um, so I often see folks who, um, you know, we get them to the point where they're able to have pain-free sex. Um, but then it's still not like, they're still not really interested in doing it. And I'm like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Because even though you're not having pain, you're still worried about having pain. Cause of course you are. Cause you had a lot of circumstances where you did have pain with this activity. Um, and nothing about that is sexy, right? Like when, when, like yeah, we could say something about, um, because sometimes people are like, well, some people like having pain during sex. Fine. That's a different thing. This is, <laughs> this is non-consensual pain that you don't have any control over. And people don't yeah. like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think that uh, I think that it's just such a hard conversation to have. And the the other thing about it is I think what people think is like sexy is like what's seen in movies where there's like no communication about having sex with your partner. And it's just like, we're just going to rip each other's clothes off and call it a day. And it's just like magical. And like, that's not actually what like makes sex workable anyways. It's like, you have to be able to communicate with, with your partner. Yeah. Another, another very common misconception is that people think they're just supposed to be able to like be basically be looked at or kissed or like touched for a second and then be able to accept something inside of a space like and be penetrated and have that be mind-blowing and like <laughs> that's not how it works and that's not from like and I know why we think that because we don't have good sex ed and we don't talk and we don't have pleasure-centric sex ed and the movies don't show that but the reality is that um every single person's genitals regardless of what genitals those are have um, have erectile tissue that needs to have blood flow for it to be a good time. Um, and that is, that's the physiological part. And you have to have enough blood flow that other things happen. So whether that is a penis or an organ is, is getting erect, whether that is a vulva is getting, it's also will actually, um, fill with blood and get bigger. Like the vulvar lips will get bigger. The vaginal canal becomes stretchier and is actually more accommodating to something being put inside. Um, whether that is um, – so any of those things. And that's just physiology. Then what what happens and what makes sex sexy is so much more about what happens between our ears than between our legs. And so then also sexual context and, like, do I like my partner? Do I feel safe with my partner? Like, 
am is my partner touching me in the place that I want to be touched or am I thinking about how I actually have to do the dishes and the kids about to wake up and like 8 million other things. Right. So um, a lot of the conversations we have around sex and I have to ask so that you can imagine my evals for painful sex are really, I mean, I'm thankfully, it's a good thing that I went into pelvic health, honestly, because I just don't really have a TMI filter. I just, I don't have, I don't really get awkward about topics. It's really hard to make me flustered. And I use it as my secret superpower to ask really intimate questions about people's sex lives. Because right. um, oftentimes I'm asking a lot of questions, you know, with consent around like, how much foreplay are you getting? What does that foreplay look like? Do you like it? And by foreplay, I mean external play that doesn't involve penetration for folks who have who are being penetrated. Um, so what do all of those things look like? And is that what you want? Because it can be the right thing for some, some person, but if it's not the right thing for you, you're not going to have a good time. And that's right. not about, that's, you're not wrong. Like your body isn't wrong. Your body's not broken. That's not anything working incorrectly. That is your body working exactly as your body's supposed to work. It's just that you might not be tapping into the instruction manual. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And I think cause there's like so much shame around it. A lot of people don't explore themselves without a partner. So then they have no idea what works and what doesn't work. And then the other thing too is, I mean, I think about this in like my world, like something that's working one time might not work the next time and that's okay. Like it's more about like exploration and like figuring out what works Totally. Your body. But since we have so much shame around it in our culture, it's just not something that's really explored very often. Well, I think the practice of yoga, right, is you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because I know much less about yoga than I know about painful sex, um, is that you, there's some amount of knowing and accepting that you are not going to get every pose exactly the most beautifully right every time. And in fact, what I would say is that yoga is about the practice of finding the poses that work for you and feel good for you and connect you to yourself and, and connect you to, um, whatever else you're seeking to be connected to. Am I close or am I totally off base? That, that is right. When people are actually connected to themselves in the practice. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. We'll take that. I will take that. So what I'm going to say about sex is that it's the same is that you are connecting to yourself, also connecting to a partner, and that there is not some perfect thing you're supposed to be able to do that doesn't, you know, like, it's not like if you orgasm, then you had good sex. If they orgasm, then they had good sex. Um, that's just not how it works. Sex is about connecting um, and being connected to yourself and the person that you're having sex, or person or people that you're having sex with. Um, and so it doesn't have to, there is no single right way to have really good fulfilling sex. Just like there is no single one right way to have a really beautiful, wonderful connected yoga practice. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I feel that. And I think, um, if I'm like thinking about yoga, most of the time when people like get injured or are not enjoying themselves anymore in it, like don't like the practice of yoga, it's because they're like in, at least in the yoga world, we say it's like they're in their ego, not really like actually in their body knowing what's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of sex happening where we're also not in our bodies. Like mm -hmm. I think oftentimes, and there are lots of reasons for that, right? Some of that is because our bodies are just not a safe place to be. For some of us, like, you know, I, what comes to mind is trauma, but like could also be dysphoria. There are lots of reasons that, or pain is another thing, um, where it's actually really tough to be in our bodies. Um, and so it, sometimes it is also because we're, we're not in our bodies because we're in our heads, which is, can be about like, what does my stomach look like in this position? Like, is my partner having a good time? Do I smell weird? What do my boobs look like? Like, you know all of these other things. Um, but so, yeah, I, you know what I made, I'm glad that we got close on this analogy cause I had never thought about it before, but now I'm going to be spending a lot of time thinking about what yoga and sex have in common. <laughs> I mean, there's just like a, I mean, for me, I think yoga kind of applies to most things in life anyways. Cause it's, cause I mean, yoga, I mean, yoga means like union with self. Right. So, so, um, and I think that sex, whether it's with a partner or just like pleasuring like yourself, that's like getting connection with your, with yourself in a, in a deeper way. So I definitely, definitely see that. <laughs> 
Yeah, totally. We're, regardless of whether or not sex is solo or partnered, there is something about, you know, being connected to yourself in it that makes it really powerful. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so I want to circle back a little bit to trauma-informed care and kind of, I guess, let's just start with like, what what is your work within that right now? Totally. So when I talk about trauma-informed care, um, the main definition I use, because we're now seeing that phrase pop up a lot and there's a lot of question about like, what does that even mean? How do we know if someone is trauma-informed? It can be, it can be tough to figure out. Um, the way that I use that phrase is that um, is in intentionality around mitigating our own potential for harm, which is kind of what we opened this conversation talking about. Um, and there are trauma-informed principles and trauma-informed skills. So the ways, for example, the way that I do pelvic exams is in a way, in such a way that I'm getting continuous um, informed consent. So not just like, do you sign this form that I can do this thing? Um, or even like, you're going to feel this. Is that okay? But can I explain everything that's going to happen, give you the pros and the cons, like what are the risks and the benefits, um, why I might want to do something this way, what our other options are, what information we get from those things, um, and then giving you step-by-step an opportunity to continue to say to opt in or opt out of whatever we're doing during, during our intervention, during our session. Um, so that is going to be a huge part. I think another part is in my trauma-informed care, it's also very affirming, affirming of gender, affirming of sexuality, um, and recognizing that that people want um, healthcare and healthcare providers that are affirming and reflective of their lived experience and leave space for their lived experience. Um, and then we're not just um, assuming that every person that walks into our office wants all of the same things based on what we consider are the traditional norms or like that, for example, that people are cisgender, that they are partnered, that they, or that they even want to be any of these things, right? That they right. are partnered, having sex with one partner who ha- who has different genitals than they have, um, any of those sorts of things. Cool. Yeah. I feel like, um, I mean, there's probably so much to say on this. Um, do you feel like there's like a shift in healthcare with people like looking, particularly medical providers, looking more into themselves and how they might be um, perpetuating harm and how they can change that? Yeah, I think with COVID and with it being as traumatic, frankly, as it's been over the last couple of years, um, I think people go one of two directions. There are the people who are like, I'm things have to be done this way because this is the only way I know for them to be safe. And this is what keeps me safe in them. And oftentimes people will close themselves off to feedback or information that it could be any, any other way. Um, and then I think there are people that are like, this cannot be all there is. This is not why I got into medicine. This is not the impact I want to be having. Um, what can I, and what can I do? What do I have control over that I can change to make me feel better about the way the situation is right now? So I think, I think yes for some people and, and no for others. Yeah, got it. Um, yeah, I also just think about a lot of the trauma that that medical providers have had to experience during COVID as well right now. And so when you're experiencing trauma yourself, you got to like wonder how, if you're not having time to process, how you cannot be passing on even even more trauma then, right? (laughs) Oh, a thousand percent. So one of the ways that trauma-informed care has really impacted me personally um, is that after I did, I mean, I've been talking to folks about trauma and the way it impacts your nervous system for years now. Um, And at some point during COVID, I had to look at myself, like I was starting to have an upregulated nervous system. I was starting to feel panicky and anxious like before every patient visit. Um, And I had to take a long, hard look and and recognize that like, oh, trauma-informed principles do not just apply to other people. Like they also apply to me. And so in that, I had a couple of options. It was like, I can um, change the way that I'm doing this work. So I can kind of put up more boundaries and more barriers and try and, you know, keep myself safe. But at what risk does that have to others? Um, and 
So in, in that moment, I decided to take a step back. I went from working three days a week at the hospital to two. So historically, I've split my time, private practice, part-time, working at the hosp- a local nonprofit um, community station at hospital the, the rest of the time. And that actually was not because I wanted to like wait until I grew my private practice or anything like that. I did it because I have better access at the hospital, but I also knew that because of the systems being flawed, like we talked about, that I wasn't ever going to be able to do that full-time. Um, so when I got tired of like administrative nonsense, um, at the hospital where I was like, oh, this is, I don't like this. And I went to go work for myself. And then when I was like, oh, I'm tired of being in charge of literally everything. Then I worked at the hospital. Right. So, um, it worked really well for me for a long time. Um, so I went until it, until it didn't, and it was during COVID. So I went down from three days a week to two days a week. And then I did that for a while and I still was just feeling horribly burnt out. I got into some situations where I was like, I don't feel good about the care that I was able to provide. I don't feel like I was able to lead um, from my my best place. I I didn't mitigate the harm that I could do as well as I want to and as well as much as, as is important to me. And so ultimately, I stepped away from the hospital entirely. So and even now, and that was like almost six months ago. I still haven't processed the shit that happened over COVID when I was working in the hospital. Like, I know that. I can. I have processed a lot of other stuff that lets me know that I haven't done that yet. Um, but it is there is a reckoning coming, I think, for so very many of us. Um, and it will be so hard. And it's. I also truly believe that it is so necessary because hurt people hurt other people. And it's not any of our individual faults that, like, shitty things happened and we had our nervous systems did the best, the best that they absolutely could to try and keep us safe and to like make it so that we could keep doing the work that we needed to be doing. And it is our responsibility to eventually when th- when we when we can, when we have access, when we are able to um, kind of rewire some of that stuff that hardwired in a way that will not continue to serve us and is might not be serving us now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also when we're in it, it's not really time for our, ourselves to process it because like we, because our nervous system is going to keep us safe until, until it's time or like what you've experienced where it's like, well, now I'm going to force you because it's, it's time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You literally can't, you cannot process trauma when trauma is ongoing. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I so appreciate you sharing that because I, I feel that not everyone in the medical world, but that's like really a big thing to like be able to share that like vulnerably that um, that's how the system was affecting you. Cause I think some people just like continue going on and on and being like, Oh, I'm fine. 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 It's fine. Everything's fine. I also think that something that's useful to talk about in that is what part of that was, was the problem. Right. So I always have seen folks who have complex trauma histories. It's something I actually love about my work. Um, I see a lot of folks who have persistent pain, something I love about my work. That work is also, I mean, not everyone wants to work with those populations because it can be very challenging. Um, That is the type of challenge that I was willing to accept and like actually felt really important for me to accept and, and want to do. What I didn't sign up for and what I did not tolerate was ultimately things in the system where it felt like there was um, a prioritization of billable units over people's health, right? And a situation where we just needed to see as many people as possible regardless of, you know, what impact that was having on us and what impact that could have on our physical and mental and emotional health. And in the way the system was set up, there was no way for me to manage upward or to make any change in that. No one cared about what I had to say. I had no voice in in being able to make the changes that I felt were really important. And so I wasn't burning out because of the patient care. I wasn't even really burning out necessarily because of like this horrific, complicated, scary pandemic situation that we were all managing. I was burning out because my administration wasn't taking care of me and there was nothing I could do about it. Yeah. Um, and people have different tolerance for different things, right? So like, that's not going to be the case for everybody. Some people could handle the administrative nonsense just fine, but like would really struggle with seeing a lot of people who have, I don't know, mental health diagnoses or complex trauma histories or something else. But that's okay. We're, the point is, is that everyone has their own threshold for their own things. And you, it's the important part is just knowing what yours are for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. I got one more question for you. 
that I ask, I ask everyone on the podcast. Um, so what is, uh, something that you would like to see changed in, in healthcare? Yeah. Well, we, I feel like we talked about a lot of them. I know. <laughs> um, I do, I think in general, seeing healthcare switch from this position of being this, like healthcare providers are this patriarchal, um, authoritative figure that is just supposed to like bestow medical advice and directives to patients and taking it from that to something where we are collaborative um, and in that being trauma-informed and affirming. And so ultimately I want a medical system where patients and providers collaborate together to find the thing that is going to work best for the patient um, and isn't just the provider who's supposed to know everything. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, Christina, thank you so much for hanging out and chatting with me today. I just really appreciate um, your approach to healthcare and physical therapy and um, was really glad to have you here today. Um, do you, can you share with everyone where they can find you, particularly because you have really funny reels that people can watch on Instagram? <laughs> thank you. Yeah, Instagram is great. So it's just my first dot last name, Christina with two Ys. It's very funky. Um K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A dot Holland um, on Instagram as well as actually on TikTok. Um, although I'm much less active on TikTok because people are mean over there and I don't like it. Um, the other good place to be able to reach me um, is via my email list, which you can access either via the link tree in my Instagram or um, on my website, which is www.inclusivecarellc.com. Okay, cool. And I'll link everything in the in the show notes so people can easily access it then. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I will probably ask you to come hang out another time again. <laughs> yes, I would love that. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Your Health Matters. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And to learn more from me, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Jackie Fenton. I look forward to chatting with you next week.